Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Mark chapter 7. Again, I want to welcome all of our guests this morning. For those who may not have been with us for a while or this is your first time, we're in the Gospel of Mark, been in it for quite some time. Um, before we get into the text, though, I'd like to just make a comment. Made the same comment last week. Uh, we are at a place of transition in the finances of the church, moving into a new financial arrangement. And just to be very blunt, things are really tight right now. And of course, it is summer. We're aware of other things going on in your life. Uh, if you normally support the church and it just slipped your mind, this would be a good time to fix that. Uh, if you haven't been supporting the church, this would be a good time to fix that. Um, a lot of people have the mistaken impression that the cafe is kind of the, the supporting, um, the financial support of the church. That's not true. We try to maintain a balance between the two, uh, but the support for the ministry here is ourselves. And so really would encourage you to do everything you can, especially uh, as you would sense the Lord directing you. That's a really good place to go uh, on this question. So that's been said, enough said. But Mark chapter 7, right? Uh, the passage, if you've been reading ahead, and I, I really hope that you are, it makes it so much better, um, appears or can appear to be something that's highly contextual, like it's happening in that moment, and it's relative to the people there in that moment, and it's a Jewish law, tradition thing, and it's relative to them. Actually, this is an issue that, that will be dealt with here that Jesus speaks to that applies to all of us at the, at the really essence of what it is to be a follower of Christ. It's not just a matter of Jewish law and tradition, but it's, if we see it for what it is, it really speaks to the core of who we are. And it touches on an issue that some Christians really, really struggle with. So uh, without going any farther, let's look at the text. Mark chapter 7, we're going to read the first nine verses. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but they eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, for it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. And he was also saying to them, you nicely set aside the commandments of God in order to keep your traditions. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, as we look at it again this morning. Father, continuing in Mark's testimony to the church, Father, that we would have eyes to, to see, ears to hear, Father, your truth. That our hearts would be touched by what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the sequence of what is happening, we've kind of been in the same place for several weeks now, is, is Jesus trying to get away with the disciples to get some downtime because they've really been doing a lot and they've been really putting out a lot in terms of ministry. The disciples are still recovering from when they were sent out and all that happened. And just they've had a lot going on and Jesus wants some downtime with them. And we've noted how they made several trips across the sea of Galilee like this trying to get away and that hasn't worked. And so now they're resorting to more of a north-south you know, trip across the Sea of Galilee, trying to get away. It's, it's not working. 
everywhere he goes, he, as soon as he gets there, he's met by large crowds. So now they um, have arrived at the northeastern end of the Sea of Galilee, and once again, Jesus is, in, is confronted. But now he's confronted by two very distinct groups. The first group is all the people that want Jesus. You know, they, they, they're bringing their sick people. They're bringing people that need healing. They're filling up the marketplace, and they're just hoping that as Jesus walks by, they might touch his clothes, receive the healing that they need, and it's happening. And that was the end of chapter 6. Chapter 6 is just kind of this mob scene of people reaching out to Jesus to be healed. But the second group that confronts Jesus is quite a bit different. Uh, they're also uh, seeking something, and that's the Jewish authorities, these Pharisees and scribes who came all the way from Jerusalem, and they're looking for an answer. Not necessarily an answer to inform, but an answer to know whether they should agree with or challenge him. It's, it's really a challenge as much as an answer. And so um, what I'd like to do this morning is focus on that second group, uh, look first at what their issue is, look at it in some depth, uh, see what they're, they're trying to get from Jesus, and then look at the way Jesus responds to it, and then finally we can ask how it speaks to us, and I believe that it does, right? Uh, the issue, starting in verse 5, um, Jesus and his disciples, again, the north end of the Sea of Galilee, uh, they're ministering to people, they're meeting, they're healing the sick and stuff, and they're approached by these Pharisees and scribes. Now, I know most of you probably know that, but just in case you don't, uh, the Pharisees were a group of very, very religious people, very fastidious in their observation of the law. They have no formal connection to the temple at all. They're not like official temple people at all. They were connected with the local synagogues because that was all about observance of the law. Highly respected by the people because they were serious about their faith, no nonsense. Pharisees were no nonsense people, all about observing the law. And that's how, in their understanding, you establish that you were a good and righteous person by the, the detail and the care, the care with which you observe the law. The scribes were a group often associated with them because while the, the Pharisees could tell you what the law meant, the scribes could tell you what the law actually said. They were the, they were the ones that copied it, so they knew the content. So you had these two groups together. You've got experts in what the law says, experts in what the law means, and they confront Jesus, right? And they have a problem, and that is that the disciples are eating without washing their hands. Now, this has got nothing to do with like our idea of you wash your hands because you don't want to get sick, right? This is not a matter of cleanliness. Hygiene's not on, on the map at all. Uh, this is a matter of ritual compliance. It's all about ritual compliance, right? If you look at some of the, of the ways that the, that the issue was presented to Jesus, this becomes really clear. Um, for example, verse 2, they had a problem with the disciples eating with impure hands. Not dirty hands, but impure hands. Their hands did not meet the holiness standard of the hands of a ritualistic pure person, right? Uh, verse 3, they were not observing the traditions of the elders. So their behavior didn't line up with what the elders over the centuries had passed down to them. Verse 4 is especially telling. If you look at it carefully, it says um, they were not doing the things which they have received in order to observe. Now think about that word order. The things they had received in order to, re to observe. They had been given these traditions not because these traditions accomplished anything. They were given these traditions solely for the purpose of doing them. 
They were given the traditions in order to observe the traditions because observing the traditions was an end to, it, to itself. Forget what it might accomplish or not accomplish. Observing the traditions, following the traditions, was an end to itself. And then in verse 5, they did not walk according to the traditions of the elders. Now, you know, in the New Testament, we're dealing with the Greek language normally, and that word walk, we've talked about that word before, that's the word peripateo, it comes in English as peripatetic, person that walks a lot, probably haven't used that word this week, uh, but it's an English word, it means to walk a lot. Well, in, in the language of the New Testament, the Greek language, that meant the whole of one's life, the encompassing way one lived, and you see that a lot in the New Testament. Well, because here he's dealing with Jews, it's reflecting back to a Jewish word, and that actually refers, the word walk here, to a specific block of the traditions that were passed down. They're really focusing in on part of these traditions. The discussion is actually moved completely away from the law. So we're not debating law here. We're debating these traditions that actually spoke to the way people did things. All of this in order to be seen as clean. That's the goal. In the minds of the Pharisees, you want to be seen as clean, and that is to be in compliance with both the law, but more importantly, with all of these traditions, all right? And to say clean, to say pure, that's not just a religious thing. That is actually what it takes to be in community. This is more of a social status than a spiritual one. And, you know, the obvious example of this, going to the law, would be that of the leper. When a person was leprous, you know, the Bible said they were unclean, right? But if you read that passage carefully in the Old Testament about the leper, that's not a comment on the leper's spiritual state. It's a comment about their relationship with the community. They can't have anything to do with the community. They're excluded from community. So in, in, in the minds of, of, of these Pharisees and some of the scribes that came along, well, this was all about people being eligible to be, participate in the community and to be perceived by the community as respectable people. Social status, big social status thing, right? The issue, again, is not one of compliance with the Old Testament law, but with these traditions. Let's talk about the traditions just a, uh, just a second. The Old Testament, I don't know who did this, but somebody counted the number of specific commands in the Old Testament. Kudos to whoever did it. 613. 613 specific directives in the Old Testament law. In these traditions, nobody knows. Can't count them. You can't count them because there's so many and because there, a lot of them are like non-specific, they're kind of general and kind of vague, and they're kind of fluid, and they're kind of dynamic, and there's not even universal agreement within the Jewish legal experts, which are which, and when they're separate. With, it's impossible to keep track of them, and because it's impossible to keep track of them, it's impossible to comply with all of them. It's a full-time job just trying to figure out what they are, right? They're very fluid, very contextual, subject to wide interpretation. Some of these traditions that they're talking about had their origins in the desire to follow the law very carefully. A really good example of one, you're probably familiar with this. Uh, it says in Exodus 23, 34, and Deuteronomy 14, found three different times, it's really important, there's a prohibition 
of cooking a kid, and that's a young goat, not a human, uh, of cooking, I'm just making sure everybody knows. Uh, the first time I read that, I freaked out. Um, uh, as a prohibition of, of cooking a young goat in its mother's milk, right? doesn't say why, just as you can't do it. Most scholars think that's a matter of honoring and respecting the principle of life. Okay, fine. So you can't cook uh, a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, the traditions expand that in the way of enforcing it. So, for example, some of you may know this, uh, if you go to an observant meal, cheeseburgers are off the menu. No cheeseburgers. Because it, it actually makes more sense than you might think. Because you don't know for sure, uh, unless you raise the cow yourself, that the milk from the cheese didn't come from the cow that gave birth to the calf that was made into the burger. Theoretically possible that a cheeseburger could be a violation of that law. Okay. Um, that's the tradition that's an extension of the law. But it doesn't stop there, right? For example, if you go into a restaurant in Israel today, not only is a cheeseburger off the menu, a burger and a shake. Now we're getting pretty, you know, doesn't go over so good. Burgers and shakes are off the menu because now you have a meat product and dairy product at the same table. In fact, some places you have to decide before you go in the restaurant which parts you want to eat in because they got you know, the meat product over here and the dairy products over here. So you got a family discussion before you enter the restaurant. That's an example. I don't know, it just sound silly, we kind of chuckle at it. But that's an example of traditions that actually expand beyond the law. And then there's a whole third category of tradition that actually doesn't have anything to do with the law at all. And, and the thinking was this, that these traditions, you know, we know where the law came from, right? God gave Moses the law, boom, gave him the tablets. They were already written. And then Moses committed the rest to memory. That's incredible. And then over the passage of time, depends on which Jewish scholar you ask, either Moses or one of the priests or scribes that followed him wrote it all down. So it went from God to Moses, oral, boom, written. In the minds of some of, some of the Pharisees and other religious experts of the first century, there was a whole block of stuff that God gave to Moses that never got written down, ever, ever. It stayed in the oral tradition of, of Jewish priests and scribes and all in books, right? They, they kept it in oral form, right? Not necessarily connected at all to the Old Testament. And in some of their thinking, that material, which remained in oral form, was more foundational to the life of the people of Israel than the written stuff. You can see where this is going, right? That is why it was so easy for them to do exactly what Jesus addresses here. As Jesus responds, this is a classic example of what they're talking about. Let's pick it up at verse 10. Um, he's just told them that you nicely set aside the commandments of God in order to keep your tradition. That's verse 9. We talked about that last week. Verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. It's right out of the law. Boom. Okay? But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, anything of mine that you might have been helped by is korban, which means given to God. 
You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition. You ever wonder how they managed to do that with a clear conscience? They knew full well that what they were saying in the tradition of Korban did not line up with the word of God. He says, you invalidate the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So he challenged them on this particular, the traditions they were talking about that they wanted to impose upon the, the, the disciples is something that was actually contrary to scripture. What they're really doing in this whole exchange is trying to put Jesus in a box. Because this was a much, this was a very contemporary debate going on in Israel in the first century as in most centuries, as these different rabbinical schools, these different pharisaical schools would debate. Because when stuff's not written down, you're going to have a lot of arguments about it, right? That's not how we do things in this family. Well, nobody ever told me exactly you know, how family arguments work, right? It's bad enough when they're clear cut. When there's confusion, it only gets worse. Well, here you've got a whole nation that can't quite decide what the rules are because of these traditions. And what these scribes and, 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 and Pharisees are trying to do is draw Jesus into that box to find out where they can put him to know whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, whether he's on their side or the other guy. They're trying to draw Jesus into this religious debate. And Jesus is going to have nothing to do with it. He wants nothing to do with that, right? See, it's, it's not, that they're, not that their argument or their concern or their issue isn't, isn't an important one. It's just the wrong one. They're asking the wrong questions completely. Jesus' response is a two-tiered response. Um, first of all, he demonstrates that the issue of, of compliance with their tradition has nothing to do with godliness. He established that back in verse 6 and 7. You honor me with your lips, your hearts are far from me. That has nothing to do with godliness. You can keep, you can keep all of these requirements to the nth degree, and it doesn't show a thing about your spiritual condition. It just shows how good you are at obeying the rules, right? That's his first response. But then he demonstrates in verses 9 and thir through 13 that the traditions themselves are obstacles to genuine godliness. What constitutes a real godly person has nothing to do with any of this stuff, right? He says again, you literally invalidate the word of God. You've taken the word of God. You've completely set it aside in order to follow the traditions. And this is where I think the issue, if we will allow it, really starts to speak to us. The whole passage really speaks of one truth in particular, and that is that true uncleanliness, real sin, isn't a matter of ritual at all. It's a matter of the heart, and that's exactly where Jesus goes. Let's just go ahead and read the rest of the section. Uh, he says this, verse 17, I'm sorry, um, uh, verse 14. Uh, and after he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of the man which going into him can defile him. But the things that proceed out of the man are what defile him. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when leaving the multitude, he entered the house, and his disciples questioned him about this parable. He said, Why are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? It goes, does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. And it's eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man is what defiles him. For from within. And here's where he really speaks to us. For from within, out of the heart of men, 
precede evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus' whole point is you want to talk about righteousness versus unrighteousness. You want to talk about genuine purity versus impurity. You want to talk about holiness versus holiness. Ground zero is the human heart. Ground zero is the human heart. Evil resides in the heart and proceeds out from the heart. Verse 20, that which proceeds from out of the man. Verse 21, for from within. Verse 23, all these evil things proceed from within. And that's not a new thought. Jesus isn't saying anything new. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, that's one you can just kind of almost pick at random, search me, O God, and know my heart. The Proverbs says so much about the darkness of the heart, the duplicity of the heart, the deceptiveness of the heart. Our heart is where the problem resides. Our heart is where the solution must be applied. Two things here. First of all is the futility of outward religion. Did it get by us that Jesus, back when he said, it is written? You know that part where he chides them for not, not following the law? Your heart's far from me. That he began by saying, it is written. He was quoting the Psalms. God had already established that the heart was the problem long before. Psalm uh, Romans 3.10, Paul says this, As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. As it is written, it had already been established. He's quoting Psalm 14. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who understand, any who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They've all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Already established centuries before. Outward compliance can never solve the dilemma because the problem is internal. Now, there are benefits to outward rules and regulations. They help us from killing one another. They're beneficial to that end, right? It's also instruction. It is good to know what is right and what is wrong. It's also a testimony to what true righteousness is in that it all points to Jesus. When we read about the standards of righteousness and godliness and purity in the Old Testament, that's all pointing to one person. Because he alone could live by that measure. It points to Christ. That's why the Old Testament tells us. The, Old, the New Testament tells us the Old Testament was a tutor to bring us to Christ. Because it points at him. Only he lived the perfect life. But outward religion is inevitably, here's, the, here's where it really starts to speak to us. Outward religion is inevitably counterproductive. It, not only does it not achieve its end, it works against it. See, it starts with an attempt to conform, and then it morphs into, I'll do you one better. You know, some of us that have more than one child have observed that sometimes when one child is doing really bad, having a bad moment, the other child will figure out, hey, I'll be super good, and I'll get on mom and dad's good side. I was the second kid. Well, my brother made that relatively easy to do. Um, so, yeah, I'm just, just saying, I love my brother. But, you know, he made raising the bar real easy. Um, so, but it's our, our nature. If, 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 our, if our standing, if our relationship, if our status is based on compliance, the more we 
struggle to comply, the harder we try to comply to the point that if I can't comply with the rules you've given me, I'll create some new ones because complying with those, I'm, I'm, I'm seen to be good and compliant and all that goes with it, right? And that effectively seals us off from real change. It's counterproductive. Real change comes from within and is only by the power of two forces. To me, this is both a stern warning and really, really good news at the same time. Real change comes from within and is only by the power of two forces. The first source is his word. Because his word shows me where I need to change. His word illuminates my life as it needs to be corrected. It is a witness. It is a testimony. But that's not all the answer. And I know that many of us, many people here this morning, have been raised with this sense that unless I complied with the written word in the same way the Jew was obligated to comply with the written word, I just have no, no hope of good standing. But that's only half the equation. The authority and the accuracy of his word must be connected to the power of his spirit. Paul put it this way, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. I absolutely love this verse. He saved us, not on the basis which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. I don't know why we stopped singing that song. Oh, it's not by works of righteousness that I have done, but according to his mercies he has saved. Maybe it was too simple. I don't know. It is profound. Oh, it's not by works of righteousness that I have done. But according to his mercies, he has saved me. And the rest of the song is, hallelujah. Uh, that's it. Just learned a new song today. Not by deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of his spirit. We have to have both. Because if all you have is the law, this, by the way, is not a condemnation of the Old Testament. This is a condemnation of human nature. If all you have is the law, then trying to live by that will just loop you back around to where you were in the beginning, trying to come by the law. And you try it, and you fail, and you come under guilt, and you come under condemnation, and you're right back down to trying to fill the law. Because in order to deal with the guilt and the condemnation and the depression, I have to fulfill the law, and I loop right back around. And you never get out of it. And eventually you come to a place of resentment and anger and frustration. And why is God asking me to do stuff I can't do? This isn't fair. Well, you know, it goes on from there. And what that will never produce is community. That will never produce community. All it produces is isolation because I'm conscious of my failures. And none of us like to be conscious of my failures, right? I am. Um, two weeks ago when we had our first wild adventure, um, our, our, our sailing adventure in, um, in Whittier, um, I, I, I very fortunately was prepared with my newfound background in, in trauma counseling through my work as a chaplain. Um, we were all sitting there at lunch, and everybody was like just ready to uh, download. I said, by the way, there's a rule here at this table. Um, in post-trauma counseling, I have learned that in the immediate aftermath of a traumatic experience, and it was, it was traumatic for some, not for me, but for others, it was traumatic, uh, I said, here's the rules. Everybody is entitled to share how they feel and share that experience as long as nobody criticizes anybody. No criticism is allowed. Now, 
There was a measure of self-service in that. I believe it. But it was still true. It was still true. That's not a healthy exercise. At that point in time, I said, um, if you want to, we, we get to that phase where you want to talk about what actually what went wrong and what should have been different, uh, we'll talk in two weeks, knowing that a large group at the table wouldn't be around in two weeks. So I was safe, yeah. But this whole business of, of criticism, it, it, you know, there's times it has to happen, but it usually doesn't produce community. So we were all able to share our feelings, and that was good, and we moved on. Um, you guys can talk to me later. Um, yeah. We absolutely are dependent on the power and the presence of his spirit. He's called the spirit of regeneration for a reason. He's the agent of regeneration. He's called the spirit of renewal for a reason. He's the agent of renewal. We are born again. What did Jesus say in John 3, 16? By, excuse me, John chapter 3, we are born again by the Spirit. We cannot separate the experience of salvation from the work of the Holy Spirit because you try to do that and all you're left with is law. And the law in and of itself is insufficient. It's absolutely essential. It is absolutely essential to understand that to be a follower of Christ, to be born again, is so much more than compliance with rules. Actually, it has nothing to do with compliance with rules and regulations and standards and traditions. It is all about accepting the free gift of Christ who was fully in compliance with every law and allowing his spirit to do its work in us, his spirit to do his work in us. To have the spirit of God living inside of us is what defines us. Because it is the spirit of God within us. I mean, just think about it. Would you rather be sitting in a room like this with a whole bunch of people who were in a big contest to see who could be, do better at observing religious rules? Or would you rather be in a room like this full of people all indwelt by and animated by the spirit of the living God. I'll take option number two every time, thank you. It is what defines us as community, which is supposedly what they were after in the first place. What does the leper want? Back into community. What do we need? Back into community. This doesn't lessen my need for his word at all. It is nourishment for my soul. It is instruction. It points me to the person of Christ. It points me past my own abilities to excuse behavior and justify and all that. I need his word. But it's equally important to be conscious of this single fact. My righteousness, my standing before God is based on two facts. Jesus died and shed his blood for me. He was resurrected that I might have new life. And that work is applied to my life, not through my effort but by the effort of the Holy Spirit. All I did was accept it. All I did was accept it. The Spirit of God applied the work of Christ to my life. That's regeneration. He came to live within me. That's renewal by the Spirit. The religious experts wanted to draw Jesus into their debate. Just which traditions do we need to follow? Just how exact do we need to be? And Jesus' answer was, in effect, you're asking the wrong question. The question to be asked is, how do we overcome the dilemma of human fallenness? And that is only by the shed blood of Christ and the power of his spirit within me. 
I'm so grateful to God. I really appreciate the fact that God chose to save me while I was in the Coast Guard. Because, let's face it, there's all kinds of practical illustrations, you know, from just for me, you know, forget preaching or teaching. There's just so many things I learned um, about being saved by saving people. We just kind of went together. There was one thing, though, that I'd never, I hadn't thought about until just this week. I was looking at, at the text here. Um, whenever we would go out, see, Ben doesn't know about this because Ben was an officer, and he didn't get to do the fun stuff. We got to do the fun stuff, go out on the boats and roll around and stuff. And whenever you, maybe he knows about it, I don't know. Whenever we would, almost universally, whenever we would come up on a boat that was in distress, there was almost always some guy on the front deck with a rope in his hand. Makes sense, right? Save me, right? We always gave him the same response. Not yours, ours. We would not tow a boat with their line. Tow it with ours. Because ours, inch and a half, double break. Ours was intended for that very task. Not only could theirs not be trusted to hold, theirs was actually dangerous. Because if it parted and it snapped back, it could kill you. A little bit of rope information for you here. When a double-braided nylon parts, it doesn't snap back. It just expands. All the energy goes out laterally, and it falls in the water. It's the only rope with which you can safely tow somebody. So we insisted that they use our line. We want to stand on the bow and say, Jesus, help me. Do it my way. And he says, no. I'm going to use his. His is the only one I'm interested in using because it's the only one I can safely trust. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. Father, we, um, we are blessed, Father. Oh, we're blessed immeasurably to live where we do and to be surrounded by the incredible beauty and the, and the blessing, Father. Oh, Father, the, the abundance of where we live. It's just, we're just blessed so much, Father. And then something happens and causes us to stop and pause and go, yeah, we are really blessed. And then um, in a moment, Father, when we stumble and fall, we're caused even more to stop and say, thank you, Lord, that you have done everything. You lived your life in perfect compliance with every law, Father, not to show us what we have to do, but to show us in whom we can trust. And, and my prayer this morning, Father, because I know it happens to us all, we get caught up in that thing of trying to do well enough, trying to be good enough. And help us, Father, just to see right off the bat what a dead end that is. Father, yeah, we're going to give it our best, but when we fall short, it's just a reminder of how much we need you. Just give us that wisdom, Lord. Uh, it, it makes the path we follow so much better and it makes us such a better witness to who you are and your great love for us and the mercy that you show us. Give us wisdom to walk that way. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.